Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Today is going to be a special episode of the Right Take. I just came back from New Orleans where I attended a four-day event called Restoration Weekend. Many of you may or may not know that the David Horowitz Freedom Center puts on an annual getaway for conservatives called Restoration Weekend. Once a year from Thursday through Sunday, usually in early to mid-November, the center holds a series of speeches and panel discussions, uh, lunch and dinner events, sometimes film presentations for the attendees, featuring some really stellar conservative pundits, politicians, thinkers, writers, filmmakers, and personalities. I've been honored to be involved with these weekends for many years now, and usually I introduce my uh, introduce many of the speakers or moderate panels. Sometimes I sit on the panels myself. Sometimes I do onstage interviews of the prominent figures in attendance at Restoration Weekend. It's really an amazing event that for many years took place at the Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach, Florida. But this year, we held it at the Ritz-Carlton in New Orleans, Louisiana, at the end of October. This year, the lineup of speakers included um, Fox News personality Guy Benson, Christopher Rufo, the Babylon Bee's Seth Dillon, uh, former Congressman Louis Gohmert, the scholar Heather McDonald, North Korean defector Yeonmi Park, journalist Kimberly Strassel, um, Jihad Watch director Robert Spencer, and many more. As I said, it's just a really amazing long weekend to experience. Anyway, for today's episode, we're going to run the audio from a panel that I moderated featuring Robert Spencer, uh, the Freedom Center's brilliant and prolific journalist Daniel Greenfield, the Center for Security Policy Director Frank Gaffney, um, and Daniel Pipes from Middle East Forum, all weighing in on the topic Israel and the civilized world at war. It was a fascinating conversation, and some of the attendees told me afterward that it was such a brilliant panel they didn't want the discussion to end. So don't miss it. Stay tuned and check it out. The topic of this morning's panel is Israel and the civilized world at war, and that's a very apt description because the conflict that we're talking about is literally a war between civilization and barbarism, between good and evil. Nothing in recent memory so horrifyingly demonstrates that, like the sickening savagery that was inflicted on innocent civilians in Israel on October the 7th. And to bring some insight to this topic, I present to you today a panel of truly distinguished thinkers. My brief introductions won't even come close to capturing how accomplished these men are, but I have to keep things short. So I'm going to go down the line here. Robert Spencer is, of course, the director of Jihad Watch and a Shulman Fellow at the Freedom Center. He is the author of 967 books. <laughs> Actually, it's 26, but they are indispensable. 27. 27? Oh, okay. I can't even. The 27th keep is up. out there now. Be sure to pick one up. It's 27 and innumerable articles and pamphlets for the Freedom Center. You really must read everything he writes. His most recent book is Empire of God, which I'm looking forward to reading and reviewing for Front Page Mag. Daniel Greenfield, too, is a Shulman Fellow and the Executive Vice President of Programming at the Freedom Center. As I'm sure you're all aware, he's an incredible journalist and a brilliant, prolific writer. I would urge you to read everything he writes, too, but that's impossible. Uh, Frank, uh, no, sorry, Dr. Daniel Pipes taught Middle Eastern and World History at Harvard and University of Chicago, so methinks no fool. He served under Ronald Reagan on the policy planning staff. He's president of the Middle East Forum and the author of 16 important books. 16, or have you had added a 17th also? Uh, 18 now. One 18. Came, one, 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 one came out this week. Okay. <laughs> 18 important books in addition to many, many articles. And Frank Gaffney is a former assistant secretary of defense under Ronald Reagan and the founder and executive chairman of the Center for Security Policy. 
He also hosts the daily program Securing America on the American Family Radio Network. You have to check that out daily, and I'm not just saying that because I owe him a lot of money. Each of these gentlemen is going to offer his take on Israel and the civilized world at war, what the conflict is about, what's going to happen next, and what we should do, and we will make time for questions afterward. I'm going to ruthlessly keep them to a certain amount of time, and, uh, and then we will just have a free-for-all at the end. So, uh, if we could begin with uh, Mr. Spencer. Many people have been joking around yesterday and today about how all we need now is a two-state solution and that that will fix everything if we just had a Palestinian state and the Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in peace. And many people do, of course, still assume, and we are still hearing this rhetoric, that if only the Palestinians had a state, then everything would be okay. Meanwhile, if we actually looked at what the Palestinians themselves are saying and have said with terrifying consistency for decades now, we would know that no two-state solution will solve anything but will only create a new jihad base for renewed attacks against Israel. This is a religious war. This is a religious war. It is not a political war. Or if you prefer, it is a political war fought for religious reasons because the religious system that is at war and started the war and is the cause of the war envisions a political system in which the whole world is subsumed under the hegemony of the people who hold to this religion. Hamas made this abundantly clear from the very beginning, from its inception in the Hamas Charter from the late 80s. It says very clearly, Israel will rise and will continue until Islam obliterates it. It didn't say Israel will rise and continue until we uh, work out a two-state solution, or Israel will rise and continue until the proper combination of concessions and negotiations creates for a pathway to peace. There is no peace envisioned except through the obliteration of Israel. And the obliteration of Israel comes from very basic and core Islamic principles. There is no state of Israel, even if it were the size of a suburban front yard, that would be allowed to exist in this framework, in Hamas's view. The state of Israel is an affront to Islam. It is not just an affront to the Palestinians, or stolen land, or any of the rhetoric that you hear all the time, the state of Israel is an insult to Islam. And as such, it must be obliterated. Why is the state of Israel an insult to Islam? Well, if you open your Qurans to chapter 2, verse 191, then you will see that it says, drive them out from where they drove you out. Drive them out from where they drove you out. Now that might seem, that's a very, very small phrase, very easy to pass by without realizing its implications, and yet its implications are absolutely gigantic and cannot be understated. Drive them out from where they drove you out is predicated on the assumption that any land that belonged to Islam at any point in history belongs by right to Muslims forever, and that Muslims not only have a responsibility to drive out the people who drove them out, but they have a divine command to do so. It is not something that is optional. It is not a political view. It is not the view of one party as opposed to another. It is a command no less important for Muslims than the Ten Commandments are for Jews and Christians. Drive them out from where they drove you out is the perfect word of the creator of the universe. And thus it is a command from him that you have to take with the utmost seriousness. Now, you can say, well, the, the Israelis didn't actually drive the Arabs out. You're quite right. Uh, the Arab League and the Arab Higher Committee ordered the Arabs to leave in 1948 because they thought that the Sunni states surrounding Israel would obliterate Israel, and then the Arabs could move back, and meanwhile, they'd be out of the line of fire. The fact is, though, that that 
that reality, although it's abundantly documented, has been completely obscured in the Palestinian rhetoric by the false claim that Israel drove the Arabs out. And the reason for the false claim was to trigger the relevance of the divine command. That you establish that they drove out the Israelis, that the Israelis drove out the Arabs, then the Arabs have a responsibility before God to drive out the Israelis. There is no mitigation of that. And every negotiated settlement has not been a rejection of that, although many of the Arabs took them to be. So Yasser Arafat, after the conclusion of the Oslo Accords in the 90s, went back home and he said in Arabic, not in English, don't worry about this. This is like the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. What's the Treaty of Hudaybiyah? It's a treaty that Muhammad concluded when he was weak and at a disadvantage, and then he broke it when he was stronger and had an advantage. But the larger point is that the negotiations, Arafat saw the negotiations, and he was explaining to his people that the negotiations were only a means to an end, and that end was to destroy Israel altogether. Now, the trigger of this immediate conflict was that the Israelis were caught napping, and we don't know the full story of that yet, but we know that they had a very light presence, if any, at the Gaza border. And the, uh, they bulldozed the, Gaza, the, the fence at the Gaza border and were able to stream across and, of course, paraglided into the music festival. You all know the stories. Now, why did that, all that happen? Because Hamas had convinced the Israelis that they were more interested in governing Gaza than in fighting Israel. And, they, and Ali Baraka, who's a top Hamas official, went on Russia tele, Russian television, RT, the day after the attacks, October 8th, and explained all this and boasted about how they fooled the Israelis. And he said that we made them think that we were not a threat. Now, why did the Israelis believe this? Because nobody is thinking about this as a religious war, and yet that's what it is. And the religion tells them, Muhammad said, you can lie in several circumstances. You should never lie, but if you're a husband and you need to lie to your wife to keep things quiet, go ahead. And if you're in war, lie. War is deceit. Now, why don't the Israelis keep that uppermost in their mind when they're dealing with what Hamas is telling them? Because nobody, nobody, in this conflict, except me, and maybe a few other people, are saying Islam has to do with this war. This war has everything to do with Islam. This war cannot be understood properly without Islam. As the great Daniel Greenfield said, it's, it's about Islam, stupid. <laughs> and he was, he was absolutely right. This is not a war that can be properly analyzed or any solution found without taking Islam into account. If the Israelis had never considered the possibility of believing what Hamas was telling them and even what Hamas was doing and showing them, but always kept in mind, drive them out from where they drove you out, that's the Hamas objective, they would never have let their guard down. And so we also have to remember, this is already a world war. It is already World War III. Now, what do I mean by that? Mahmoud Az-Zahar, another Hamas official, he said, this is not just a conflict with Gaza. See, people think if they get their Palestinian state, then it'll be okay. Or if they destroy Israel even, it'll be okay. No, Mahmoud Az-Zahar said, this is a conflict with any system of unbelief, and we're gonna destroy Christianity, we're gonna destroy the other religions, and Islam will reign supreme. Now. Is, he gonna, is Islam going to rule the world? I don't think so. But are they going to kill a lot of people trying? Absolutely. Is anybody paying attention to that? No. That is not a question that anybody is willing to consider because it would be Islamophobic to do so. And so this is the truth of this conflict. It, even if, God forbid, Israel were destroyed in this conflict, which I don't think it will be, but even if in the worst case scenario that were to happen, there would still not be peace in the Middle East. Instead, you'd have emboldened jihadis moving against Europe and against the United States. And so, uh, well, that is the situation as it stands, and these gentlemen will elucidate more of it. What happened? 
That's something that Ro the great Robert Spencer raised. And it's something you don't see in the media. You can watch MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. They'll give you nonstop 24-7 coverage of the latest Hamas propaganda that 7 billion Palestinian children were killed in the last two minutes by Israeli bombs, courtesy of the statistics from the Gaza Ministry of Health and Rocket Storage. <laughs> and of course, there'll be lots of videos. <laughs> There'll be lots of videos of airstrikes, but they're not going to answer the basic question of journalism, what happened in the lead, and that's something uh, Robert Spencer touched on. What happened in the days and the weeks before the attacks? What isn't the media discussing? Well, let me tell you something you will not hear in the media. Ten days before the attacks, Israel and Hamas agreed to a ceasefire. Did you hear that one in the media? Raise your hands. No? Funny. When all the people are screaming, the pro-Hamas protests are screaming in the streets, ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire. There was a ceasefire in place. When Hamas attacked, it was under a ceasefire. Yeah, it was under a ceasefire. That's why they want another ceasefire. Um, Robert Spencer again mentioned the Treaty of Hubadiyya. So there was a ceasefire in place. It had been negotiated 10 days before the attacks themselves began. And as part of the ceasefire, uh, Hamas got a bigger fishing zone, more visas for people from Gaza to enter Israel. And uh, Israel got, an, got a cessation of the violence. There had been border riots, explosives had been thrown at Israeli soldiers, um, incendiary balloons were being used to set fires into the fields in some of the same communities that were attacked. And after the ceasefire, negotiated by the way by Qatar, the Islamic terror state of Qatar, which is a state sponsor of Hamas, which is now currently engaged in negotiating to release the terrorists. You can trust them, of course. Hamas pulled back the riots at the borders. Israelis went into the final days of the high holy day season, believing that everything was okay. There was a light force at the border. Most of the focus was on the West Bank because the violence there had been in the West Bank. And Gaza had been fairly peaceful for about two years, at least as far as Hamas went. Um, Hamas built up credibility uh, to give everybody the impression that it could be trusted to follow its commitments. Of course, Hamas leaders also said that they'd been planning the attack for two years. For those two years, there was a certain amount of quiet because those were the two years that Hamas was planning the attack. Now, here's a bit of a funny thing. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had an article in Foreign Affairs magazine describing his great diplomatic achievements. Among them was de-escalating Gaza using diplomacy between Israel and Hamas. Now, the funny thing about this article is if you find a print version of the article, you can still find those words there. But online, those words have been erased. They no longer appear in the article because National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is no longer as eager to take credit for his incredible diplomatic achievement because his diplomatic achievement led to the murder of over 1,000 Israelis. That's what diplomacy had accomplished. Now the thing is, Qatar didn't just play us w this way. This time, they played us the same way twice. Qatar was the one under whose auspices the agreement with the Taliban was negotiated in Afghanistan. And the Taliban agreed to join a multi-party government. And the United States would withdraw from Afghanistan. And the moment the United States began withdrawing from Afghanistan, the Taliban began conquering Afghanistan province by province. And you know what the State Department did? The State Department kept insisting until the very last minute that the Taliban were just building up leverage to form a multi-party government. The Taliban conquered a third of Afghanistan, half of Afghanistan. And the State Department kept negotiating with them to form a multi-party government. Of course. Qatar had managed to pull off the same thing twice within a matter of a few years. Both for the first time leading to the Taliban conquest of Afghanistan, the second time leading to the brutal Hamas attack and the, slaughter, the worst slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust. Have we learned anything from the experience? Absolutely not. Did we learn anything from the time that Qatar was hosting Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of September 11th? We went in there to try to get them. The Qataris tipped off Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He was off on a government plane before he could whistle. We learned nothing from that experience because right now we're still thanking Qatar for engaging in negotiations. Now let's talk about the terms of the ceasefire that Hamas wanted. What did Hamas want? They wanted a bigger fishing zone. What did they do with that fishing zone? Did they go fishing? Did they catch some trout? No, they used that to launch a naval invasion of Israel. Now what about the work visas? In 2021, Secretary of State Tony Blinken 
spoke at J Street, the anti-Israel lobby group, and he told J Street that um, one of the things that he, was, uh, he had convinced the Israelis to do to make life better in Gaza was to provide work visas to Gazans to come and work in Israel. After Hamas took over Gaza, Israel logically closed it down because you don't want people who want to kill you into your country. They only allowed people in for medical care, and even that was too much. But in 2019 and in 2021, Israel significantly expanded the visa program, the um, work permit program. By 2019, um, they were allowing in some 12,000. By, by 2021, it was about 19,000. Under Netanyahu, unfortunately, they kept the program and they expanded it over to uh, about 21,000. Now they're finding these work permits all over the place in Israel now in the bodies of the dead terrorists because the terrorists knew exactly what, who was living in those communities, what their security arrangements were. People who survived in those communities are saying that the terrorists knew who lived where, how many kids they had, even if they had a dog. All those day laborers that went into their communities, those day laborers came back as terrorists. They provided Hamas with info on how to attack those communities, how to bypass them, and how to kill everybody in there. Now, did nobody see this attack coming? Of course they saw the attack coming. We just dismissed it as impossible, inconceivable. If you actually go back to September, um, in September, the media is reporting that there are border riots on the border and that Hamas is practicing, quote, storming settlements and kidnapping Israelis. But all the experts, including our experts, come out and they say that Hamas does not actually mean this. They're just doing this in order to improve their position, the negotiating position for the negotiations. Just like up until about a week before Kabul fell, the State Department was insisting that um, the Taliban were just improving their position for the negotiations. So we actually saw Hamas doing this in plain sight, but nobody took it seriously because we believed that Hamas was a rational actor, that they were not out to do this, again, as Robert Spencer said. Uh, these are really the roots of this disaster. Um, because the moment you believe you can trust terrorists, the terrorists have set you up for the kill. And that is the fundamental catastrophe here. And absolutely nobody, none of the people responsible for this, particularly in the State Department, want to claim credit for this, want to talk about how they enable the terrorists to go into, Ga to go into Israel from Gaza. They don't want to talk about their diplomatic successes, but they're still doubling down on the idea that there is a negotiated solution, that diplomacy can work with terrorists. And of course, it can never work with terrorists. One minute. Okay. The fundamental catastrophe here is that we continue being played the same way, whether it's by Qatar, whether it's by Iran, whether it's by all the various Islamic terrorists and their state sponsors. We believe that they want the same things that we do. Hamas was getting in $2 million a day from those work permits, and so it was assumed that Hamas would not do anything to interfere with that. What Hamas cares about more than the two million in work permits or the bigger fishing zone is killing Israelis. All the Hamas negotiations were aimed at only one thing and one thing alone, and that was being able to invade in Israel and kill as many Israelis as possible. What we saw was the expression of what Hamas had been all along. Back in the day, Hamas was described as a social work group back when it was operating under the usual Muslim Brotherhood rules. As it got more and more violent, we still keep talking, kept talking about how it wanted some sort of um, negotiated solution, how it wanted to open up Gaza. Um, the Biden administration pressured Israel into opening up Gaza to make life better for Gazans. This, was, this is still the thing that they're obsessed with, get humanitarian aid into Gaza, make life better for Gazans, and they are going to turn around. It never works that way because that is not what Hamas wants. It is not what any of the so-called Palestinians want. It is not what any of the Islamic terrorists that we are up against want. What they want is the absolute destruction of civilization, our civilization. It's, as, again, as Robert Spencer said, it is their divine and it is their religious mission. We still th insist on thinking of the Muslim world as operating by our paradigms. They're only operating by their paradigm. When we negotiate with them, we have two choices. We are either appeasing them, and if we are negotiating them, then the bottom line is we are appeasing them, or we are ready to actually fight them and destroy them. There are a lot of lessons from Israel for us. Our border is far more open than Israel's was. We are far more prone to trusting terrorists and taking them in. And if something were to happen on our border, we would be far more at risk than Israel was. What would happen if 100,000 armed men, 250,000 armed men showed up on our border and started killing us in the same way? Are we ready for it? I don't believe that we are. There's a lot of things for us to learn from the disaster, from the atrocity, from the catastrophe that happened in Israel. And there are things for us to learn also from Israel's response. The Israelis now have decided that they have no choice but to destroy Hamas. 
We need to learn from that that we have no choice but to destroy Islamic terrorism. We cannot negotiate it with it. We cannot coexist with it. We cannot treat it as a rational actor. We must either go to war and win, or we must surrender to it. The Israelis are going to war. Let us go to war as well and destroy it once and for all. Well, the great Robert Spencer had the pleasure of taking on Islam, and the great Daniel Greenfield had the pleasure of taking on the U.S. government. I have the less great pleasure of taking on the Israeli government. <laughs> um, I'm a historian, and I just wrote a book on this subject, actually. Submitted it uh, at the end of September, uh, which I called Israel, Israel Victory. And as I see it, the Israeli, well, well, let's call it the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, though it wasn't called that back in the old days. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict goes back 140 years to 1880. And there are three eras. The first was the era of 1880 to 1948, until the state of Israel came into being, when the Jewish community, the Yeshuv, was weak but very smart. So smart that in 1948, it was able to defeat six Arab state armies with very small resources. From 1948 to 1973, 25 years, the Israelis took on the Arab states. Palestinians didn't matter at that point. Arab states, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and it did incredibly well. It had good resources and it used them to the utmost. And 1967 was arguably the greatest military victory in human history. 1973 to the present, the Arab states have receded with only a couple of minor exceptions, the Arab states have not been military engaged against Israel. Instead, the Palestinians have come back. And now Israel is the party with the great resources, the F-35s, the high-tech industry, the startup nation. Israel has all the uh, material power. The Palestinians have almost none. And yet, in this third era, the Israelis have gone from this enormous cleverness and competence to incompetence since 1967. In 1967, the Israelis took over the West Bank and Gaza. The so-called Dayan policy was put into effect, which said basically, as long as you Gazans and West Bankers don't attack us physically, we're okay with you. You can teach, think, preach, whatever you like. We don't care. Just don't attack us. Well, uh, and by the way, we'll help you get richer. Uh, in 1993, Shimon Peres and others at the Oslo Accords built on that and said, we're going to give you everything you want, a state um, functioning economy, just leave us alone. And in 2005, Ariel Sharon took it a step further and said, we're going to leave Gaza. Yeah, we're taking some uh, casualties, because we're, so we're going to leave Gaza, we're going to let you run it. This series of incompetencies, 1967, 93, and 2005, is the background to where we are today. The Israelis just didn't take it seriously. They thought because they're now strong, they don't need to pay much attention to this clearly weak adversary, uh, a man I respect very much, uh, Ephraim Inbar, a strategist in Israel. He persistently called the Palestinians a strategic nuisance strategic nuisance. Uh, it just didn't take him seriously. Perez said, I pay attention to what they do, not what they say or think. So this Islamic and nationalist fervor built and built, and the Israelis just didn't pay attention. The key, which has been alluded to, is the phrase, something to lose. The, 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 the Israeli policy was to hope that the Gazan administration of Hamas, the West Bank administration of the Palestinian Authority, would have something to lose, whether it be fishing zones or employment in Israel or other benefits, and therefore they would get tame. Uh, they persuaded themselves of this. I've been arguing with them for years. The security establishment just would not see this. They had what they call the concept, and the concept was enrich them, placate them, and they will eventually come around. Now the question is, what next? Um, clearly Hamas needs to be extirpated, needs to be destroyed. It's gonna be difficult. Um, and clearly after that, and I might get dissent on the panel from this, 
uh, is not an Israeli occupation of Gaza, which no one wants. It's certainly not having the Palestinian Authority, which is almost as bad as Hamas and much weaker than Hamas, take over in Gaza. It's not having an international contingent come in and take over. It's not having the Arab states take over. Egypt doesn't want to take over. I believe that there is actually something positive that can come out of this uh, tragedy, and that is the following. Since 2008, since December 2008, for almost exactly 15 years, the Gazan population has been used in a unique way. We're all familiar with the notion of cannon fodder, of, of poor, uh, unprepared soldiers being sent out. For example, in Bakhmut in Ukraine, the Wagner prison recruits were just thrown in and how many died, it didn't matter. That's historically quite common. What Hamas did was something unique, as far as I know, which was to use its population not to win on the battlefield, but to suffer privation, to suffer bombings, to suffer injury, to suffer hunger, to suffer death. And every time that happens, Hamas's stature rises. The people are out on the streets and in the campuses, and Hamas gains money from its supporters, and uh, in, uh, it, it gets the approval of the Iranian overlords in Tehran. So the Gazan population of 15 years has been subjected to destruction and death for Hamas's purposes. Hamas is not interested in its population except to use that population to further its goals of destroying Israel. And that population, I believe, in the course of this 15 years has changed. Not the West Bank population. West Bank population remains quite radical. But the West Bank population, by and large, has pulled back, just wants to live its life. And therefore, I think the Israelis have a real opportunity now, presumably they take Gaza and they control Gaza, to work with Gazans to set up a police force, to set up an administration, and run the place in a decent sort of way. Not a great way. I'm not looking for democracy. I'm not looking for friendship to Israel, but just a decent way in the sense that Egypt and Jordan, both of which are ruled by incompetent dictators, uh, are decent places. They're not sending over missiles to Israel. They're not sending over uh, murderers to marauder, uh, but are living quietly side by side with Israel. I think the Israelis have the chance to build up a cadre of Gazans with whom they can work. Not a state, nothing grand, but something decent. And then, presumably, they could do the same on the West Bank eventually. So I think something good can come out of this. But the Israelis are so incompetent. And what we've seen in the last, uh, what, uh, 20 days, they continue to be incompetent. They had no plan. They had no plan to take over Gaza. That's why it's taking so long. So let's hope they get shocked into competence. But I am not counting on it. Good morning, everybody. Um, having learned almost everything that I know about this subject from the three people on this panel, I'm <laughs> going to try to just round out what they've already told you with a couple of other thoughts about what is going on here. Um, I completely agree, though I think I would characterize it a little bit differently with Robert's suggestion that we're in a religious war. I would suggest we're in a spiritual war. This is good versus evil. And Western civilization has its flaws, but by comparison with the alternatives, it's pretty clear that we're the good and the evil is abounding. What we're seeing in the Middle East at the moment, I believe, is a function not only of the interests and evil of the immediate actors about which we've heard some this morning, Hamas notably. Uh, Hamas is ISIS, as has been pointed out by, among others, the Israelis. Hamas is also the Muslim Brotherhood. Hamas is also the Taliban. Hamas is also Hezbollah and, and so on. Th these are, in short, all people who embrace, yes, a religious program, but as Robert has taught me, uh, it is first and foremost a political program. Uh, and I'm speaking specifically of Sharia. The doctrine that uh, impels, among other things, jihad. And 
there's really not a dime's worth of difference between the various adherents to Sharia and the program that they follow because it is all governed by that doctrine. And what does that mean? That means it is their obligation to use violence wherever possible to achieve the triumph of Islam worldwide. And that is a big problem because there are a lot of people, not all Muslims, let me hasten to add, but an awful lot of them who do believe that that is their obligation as faithful Muslims. And that is certainly the view of the authorities of Islam. So if that were not bad enough, of course, we have the problem that we remain utterly confused about all of that. The President of the United States yesterday met with three representatives of the Muslim Brotherhood. No, they're not billing themselves as such. One is the Attorney General of Minnesota, <laughs> Keith Ellison. Another is a guy who runs M-Gage, which is a political action operation with whom Biden met before he was elected and plighted in exchange for their support and contributions that he would populate his administration with Muslims, meaning they're Muslims, the Muslim Brotherhood. And then third, a personal favorite of mine, uh, was Imam Mohammed Majid. It may not be a household name, but if you're following these guys, he is the past president of the largest Muslim Brotherhood front in the United States, the Islamic Society of North America. He is also one of their top influence operators. He serves on the US International Religious Freedom Commission as a presidential appointee. He runs a nine, I think it's nine, maybe it's more now, mosque complex in Northern Virginia. All of them jihadi. Now it's stealth jihad here mostly, a term I think Robert coined, but it's indistinguishable in terms of its agenda from that that is being pursued elsewhere. I did want to introduce just one other piece of this though, um, in addition to Iran, which has been of course the great enabler of all of this, with its money, with its missiles, with its U.S. government supplied funding, enabling the jihad that we've just witnessed and more generally that we are experiencing and will worldwide. But there's one other element in this, and I'm going to shamelessly, in the company of all these authors, hold up the book. My new one, which is outside is about the guys who I believe have been instrumental in all of this and who are bringing us the Third World War and who are poised to win it, the way things are going. And that would be the Chinese Communist Party. And Communist China has clearly green-lighted the invasion of Ukraine. They've green-lighted the invasion of Israel. And my guess is they've got a couple more places that they intend to light matches and set off tinderboxes before we get to their invasion, which is coming. And that would be, of course, involving Taiwan, but I don't think it'll be confined to Taiwan because it's very clear that they regard us as the obstacle to the realization of their totalitarian ambitions, which is to rule the world. And it will be a very interesting thing to see how these guys square off. The guys who believe that Allah has destined them to be the world hegemon, and the Chinese Communist Party, who believe Xi Jinping has destined them to become that hegemon. The point is it's not gonna be good for us and I'll just leave you with this closing cheerful thought. <laughs> this world war 
unlike the previous two, will have a home front feature to it. That is coming. And in part, it has been greatly exacerbated by President Biden, who decided to allow the borders to be completely decimated so that any number of what it appears are predominantly unaccompanied, military-aged, fit young men, some of whom are from every garden spot in the Muslim world. And that's not even counting the 70 to 100,000 that Biden imported from Afghanistan after we surrendered the place to them. But there are, by some estimates, several divisions worth of Chinese People's Liberation Army special operators who have also benefited from the open border and are now, with your tax dollars, disseminated all over the United States. So we are in a world war. There will be more of these conflagrations, I anticipate, maybe Korea, maybe Pakistan and India, maybe Latin America. Who knows? But there will also be a war here. And we best be getting ready for it. And we are not at the moment. Thank you. So thank all you gentlemen. Uh, okay, you sir. Um, you all have a unified voice in that you're saying there is not a conspiracy anymore. It is obvious. Do you all agree with that? Am I on the mark? Do you mean a conspiracy on our part? No, no of course not. Well, I, I know that what we're saying here would have been dismissed up until recently and still is in many circles as a conspiracy theory. But it's obvious just reality. It's just reality. There's a lot of collusion is the way I would put it, whether they've conspired or not. Okay. Now, having said that, we also know that our federal government, in part or in whole, is in on that collusion. That's, that's obvious to anyone who looks at it objectively. Now, what you, I didn't get from you was a prescription on how to turn the bus around. Because once the bus is going forward, it has a lot of energy. But if you can divert that energy, if you can push on it, it will crash and burn. So how can we start the push against a bus to get it to go off the road and, and destroy itself. Because with all these factions that you're talking about, the Chinese, the, the Islamist world, uh, with their own individual, very, very um, personal worldviews and, 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 and fighting in between them, um, which is pretty common too, um, what can we do? Please be prescriptive. Thank you. I'd take, I'd take a cut at it if I can. Um, I, I'm all about prescriptions, so thank you for asking the question so pointedly. Um, let, me, let me just take a piece of this because there are lots of it and we've got much more expert people on the Middle East especially than me. Um, in the book, we've got 20 specific recommendations as to what we do about the Chinese Communist Party. The single most important one of which is to address directly what I think is the single most important facet of what they call unrestricted warfare that they've been waging against us, which is elite capture. Joe Biden is the poster child of elite capture. He has populated his administration with people like him who have also, I believe, been working with and for the Chinese Communist Party. We have members of Congress similarly. We have financial uh, masters of the universe and other business leaders. We have media personalities and owners. We have academics galore and Hollywood, all more or less batting, as Joe Biden likes to say, for the other team. 
We've got to fix that. Especially if, as I fear is the case, we are now moving from this pre-kinetic unrestricted warfare into a shooting war kind. And it is simply, well, not only intolerable, but suicidal to have people who are working for the Chinese Communist Party having anything to do with the power in this country, political, economic, financial, what have you. So I invite you to take a look for other prescriptions, but that gives you the, the, the hardest nut, frankly, because this is a very well-established and fatal problem. I see the problem a bit differently, more profoundly. Uh, we are a rich country at peace. We are powerful and we are blasé. We do not feel there are real dangers. Uh, no power since World War II has been as strong as we are. And therefore we feel easy, uh, guilty. Uh, we make no real efforts. I made that point about the Israelis a few minutes ago and I think it applies as much or more to us. We just don't take this seriously. And look at 9-11, all of us lived through that, and the shock of that, and united we stand, and the national unity and sentiments, and how long did that last? A year, maybe two? And then we went back, because we're just so strong, so big, so happy, so content, and I fear it'll take enormous disaster to wake Americans up. Uh, and it's not happening, and I don't see it in Israel, and I don't see it here. We're, and I don't see it in Europe, and I don't see it in Japan, I don't see it in the wealthy democracies. We just don't worry. And now we're confronted with uh, China, uh, and we're just not worried. Daniel Rauer, care to respond? Well, we can also, um, Frank mentioned uh, Chinese uh, figures in the government. Um, they're also, uh, Daniel Pipes was recently discussing um, Islamist ones. There are two Pentagon chiefs of staff that we've exposed thus far who have ties to the government of Iran and Qatar. And one of those uh, people right now also has ties to the Muslim Brotherhood and is advocating for Hamas on her Instagram account. Uh, the Biden administration has brought in some of the worst actors possible. It is really vital to clean uh, these people out of the government and to actually go back to what we were doing um, early on after September 11th, which is to tackle the Muslim Brotherhood presence in America. The Muslim Brotherhood presence, uh, you know, as um, Dan Pipes correctly mentioned, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Hamas is an arm of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, we've got Hamas in America. We have to clean these people off to go back to the original roots of the Muslim Brotherhood organizations. They built up a vast political infrastructure, much of which is now networked with the Democratic Party. Uh, for example, when the Southern P uh, Poverty Law Center was putting in $100 million to change um, elections, to change the political makeup in places like Georgia. Um, the Islamist groups were on that. They benefited from that massively. About 10% of the Democratic delegation in Georgia now is Muslim, which is wildly unprecedented. They're less than 1% of the population. So the Muslim Brotherhood is well on its way of gaining political power in the United States. We should not underestimate them. There are thousands of Ilhan Omars now running for political office on the statewide level. Uh, this is a crisis we need to urgently address, and we need to urgently address the problem of Islamist infiltrators across the federal government, including at top levels of the Pentagon. One small note of encouragement is that this grand coalition of evil is already showing signs of strain. Uh, we see that the left in pushing its insane cultural agenda, and I can tell you that speaking as an Asian woman myself, the... <laughs> the fact is that it's Muslim groups in the United States who have been among the strongest in opposing the imposition of this insanity and this sexual depravity and everything else, the trans madness and all that on primary school children and such, it's been Muslims who've been standing against that. Now, this has gotten a lot of people on the right very excited, and I would caution against that because they think, oh, now we can be friends. And it's so pathetic, you know? And I understand being isolated for so many years, people want to have uh, their own coalitions, and they think that the Muslims that are protesting against this madness will be reliable allies. The, they have not stopped, they've not dropped any of their Islamic principles which hold us in contempt 
and demand our subjugation, and we should remember that. But the fact that there is large-scale and growing rejection in the Muslim communities in the West of the LGBTQ business is a, is a welcome sign that could collapse the whole left into infighting and divert them from their larger goals. Thank you, gentlemen. And I'm sorry I misgender, misgendered you earlier, Robert. <laughs> I'll be filing suit. Pronoun police. Uh, I, believe, I believe Phyllis has a question next. I, I absolutely loved that, Robert. That was a classic. Yeah. And actually, the question I was originally going to ask was you sort of went over it when you made your answer. So my fallback question would be um, in terms of Israel and going in and s saying they were going to smash Hamas. Great, they'll do it. But I think we all know, and they must know, that a new iteration is going to take their place. And I'm wondering what future plans they have uh, for it, whether it be five years or however many years, because we all know that, that these people are not like the US. They will take their time. And so um, I'm just wondering what you think about what will happen after Hamas is gone and some new organization or some new group with a new name is going to come in and do the exact same thing. Well, I'm advocating an administration in Gaza that will be comparable to those in Egypt and Jordan. And they're tough, and they crack down. In other words, not all Muslims are members of the Muslim Brotherhood or Islamists. There are plenty who are on the other side, including the leaders of Jordan and Egypt. So I would like to see them do something comparable, and they would. So it's up to the Israelis to find the right Gazans to be the tough guys in Gaza who keep out the Hamas-like, the Islamist organizations. It, it isn't that difficult. They, it isn't that difficult. Plenty of other rulers in the Middle East are doing that all the time. Look at Tunisia. Uh, you know, they do it. They do it well. They know how to suppress their Islamists. You're absolutely right that when Hamas is gone, they'll just be a new jihad group. There are already new jihad groups that are more popular than Hamas in Gaza, including the Lions of Allah, who are much more violent than Hamas. So it's only a temporary solution. It's buying a little time to destroy Hamas. And then these other groups will build up unless, as Daniel is saying, then the whole principle is f directly fought against. But what also needs to be done is ultimately the Arab states in the neighborhood have to relent and grant the Palestinian Arabs citizenship, which they have denied because they want to exacerbate this problem and prolong it. And if they did that, then a lot of them would leave. They, they, they don't want to be in this situation any more than anybody else. I'm not saying that none of them do, and they're all moderates. I just mean a lot of people would really rather not be waging jihad all the time, and they would go. They would take the opportunity to go live in Jordan or Syria and have a normal life. Or Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Scotland. Yes. Ham Hamza Yusuf is the first minister. No, 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 no. Hamza Yusuf is the first minister of Scotland, a man of Pakistani origins, and he has invited the Gazans to come to Scotland. So, <laughs> can you imagine? Israel has yeah, two this, basic options. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Mark. 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 Yeah. Uh, no, no, sorry. Uh, sorry, we've got the mic over there, but this gentleman, this gentleman next. Uh, thank you all. Uh, you, you four have been leading the way in trying to educate people on the dangers of radical Islam. Uh, I do have to stand a bit in defense of all leaders in the Middle East being incompetent. Uh, put yourself in Netanyahu's place. I mean, he, even when he had a Republican Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, Pompeo's negotiating with the Taliban. He's the guy that negotiated that terrible deal, the withdrawal. Netanyahu's got the liberals in Israel. He's having to try to placate them with his hands tied. Uh, in, in Egypt, al-Sisi is not really that diplomatically apt, but... Uh, 
he understands what's going on. He doesn't like the Muslim Brotherhood. There are leaders around the Middle East that would like to do more, but with the crazies in America, been the most powerful country, they're putting, we are putting so much pressure on the people who are competent in the Middle East that they're having to make poor decisions because of our pressure. It's our doing. I'm encouraged this week with Mike Johnson becoming speaker, but otherwise, you know, it's, it's not been a body that's been terribly helpful in standing up against radical Islam. So I applaud y'all's years of standing up for the right things, but there are competent leaders in the Middle East. I, I'd just like a comment uh, on the broad brush there. Well, uh, on September 20th, um, Biden finally agreed to meet with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu after putting him off for as long as possible. And one of the things that Biden told Netanyahu was that he had to de-escalate in Gaza if the normalization talks with um, Saudi Arabia were to go forward. So part of what happened uh, with the Hamas attack was also the pressure from the Biden administration to de-escalate in Gaza, which meant bribing Hamas. This is a pattern that began under the Obama administration. Uh, every time Hamas attacked, Israel would respond, and then maybe for two or four days, the Obama administration would affirm Israel's right to defend itself. Then right afterward, they would insist on a ceasefire. And to get a ceasefire from Hamas, you obviously have to do something for Hamas. So this is unfortunately a pattern of the United States, particularly the Obama and Biden administrations, pressuring Israel. It is no coincidence that the worst catastrophic terrorism has happened under Obama and then now under Biden. Ever since Biden began pouring money again back into the West Bank and Gaza, terrorist attacks increased dramatically. And this is something that Israel has no control over. If we fund terrorism, if the United States government, if the White House, the Biden administration funds terrorism, Israel can only do so much about that. Oh, good. We get to have an argument. <laughs> <laughs> it's very kind of the two of you to defend the Israeli leadership and blame it all on Washington, on Obama and Biden. I'm not defending Obama and Biden, but for example, 1993, the Oslo Accords was not imposed by the United States. In fact, the first American reaction uh, by the Clinton administration was very cool. We didn't like this all that much. 2005, when the Israelis withdrew from Gaza, this was not under American pressure. It came as a complete surprise to the Americans. The Israelis make their own mistakes. Don't blame Americans for Israeli mistakes, please. Could I just say, Louis Gohmert, Thank you to you and Michelle Bachman and Trent Franks and a few others for getting this Muslim Brotherhood peace and for challenging the United States government under Republican and Democratic administrations, by the way, uh, for aligning with it or uh, allowing it to be influential in our circles. Alas, None of the three of you are in Congress any longer. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that Mike Johnson, who interestingly enough, get this folks, as a state legislator in Louisiana, took the lead on getting the House of Representatives in that state legislature to adopt a resolution calling upon law enforcement in the state not to engage in outreach with the Council on American-Islamic Relations. So there may be hope yet. We'll look for your influence, sir. Thank you. I'd like to come out against both the American and Israeli governments. Uh, I think it's clear that the Israeli government suffered a massive failure of intelligence, and it should fall and there should be a stronger government in its place. We'll see how that sorts out. But in the meantime, let's not forget that Joe Biden went over to meet with Netanyahu, and what did he do? He gave $100 million to Hamas. And make no mistake, that is $100 million to Hamas. Yep. He gave $100 million to Gaza for humanitarian aid, and he said, you know, if Hamas gets this, it will just show they're bad. Well, we already <laughs> knew they were bad, and there's nothing in Gaza to prevent Hamas from getting that, that money. There's no entity to which the US government can give that $100 million and it will not end up with Hamas. And even if it is, 
all peanut butter for sandwiches, there will be some way it can be used in rockets. They got water piping to, to, for, for, for irrigation and used it for rockets. Mm -hmm. uh, these people, they stop at nothing. So you give $100 million to Gaza, you're funding Hamas. Right. Okay, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid this is going to have to be the last question. On a little different subject, what was the president's objective when he immediately opened the border when he got in office? Destroy the United States. <laughs> Which is, by the way, I will tell you, I, I tried to study this pretty closely. I think I'm not exaggerating in saying that every policy he's adopted has had two things in common, both domestic and foreign. They're bad for America, and they're good for the Chinese Communist Party and or other enemies of our country. I would slightly amend Frank's answer to the question, why did Biden open the border? And I would say it's to find new voters, new Democratic voters. To destroy the United States. <laughs> <laughs>